Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Brought to you by Nomad. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience of field, and our members' stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. This episode is for all you golf fans because we're talking about work that's being done on golf courses in Indiana to increase biodiversity and ecosystem health. We'll get into that in 90 seconds. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. So we're back with the Turkey Call All Access podcast. I've got Doug Richmond, Scott Fetters, Pat McFadden, and Ryan Boyer here with us. We're going to be talking about some of the efforts that have been um, put into increasing biodiversity on golf courses. And this is something that I was not really aware of um, that actually... um, Doug, was it you that sent over the article um, that was kind of going into the history of that? Or who sent that over? It was Scott. Oh, okay. Scott, right. Um, yeah, I had no idea, like, that this kind of research has been going on um, for a little while on on how to um, kind of quantify the way that, that wildlife use um, golf courses. Um I guess before we get into that, um, let's uh, introduce everyone. Um, so, Doug, why don't you go first? Uh, just let people know who you are, uh, where you're from, and whatnot. You can throw a fun fact in there if you want. Okay. <laughs> so I'm Doug Richmond. I'm a professor of entomology at Purdue University. I specialize in uh, soil insects, and I have an extension responsibility for the turf grass industry in the state. All right, Scott, you're next on my screen. Uh, Scott Fetters, uh, I'm a private lands biologist with the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, I help administer the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program in the uh, northern third of the state. Um, And I have an interest in golf and the environment, and that's kind of what brought us here today. All right. And Pat is next um, for me, and I, I think uh, people should should recognize Pat. You've been on the podcast before and um, have done some other uh, projects where we featured some of the, the work you've been involved in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun being part of these podcasts. So um, I'm Pat McFadden. I am the uh, Habitat Coordinator for the state of Indiana. I sit on the Indiana State Board, and um, I'm the past president of the state chapter. And I also am the Superfund chairman, which our Superfund is are the monies that we collect and disperse out throughout the state. Um, so I'm in charge of those monies also. So that's a little bit of my NWTF background. All right. 
And last but not least, Mr. Ryan Boyer. Yeah, I'm Ryan Boyer. I am the district biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation that covers Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. So I'm responsible for uh, helping guide and direct our conservation program delivery in each of those three states. All right. So I guess um, to start off with, and I, I can kind of open this up to whoever wants to take it, maybe Scott, um, what is, how did, like, give us some of the background on on some of the research that's been done on golf courses, biodiversity conservation. Um, when did that first start? And then we can talk about how NWTF got involved in it. Yeah, sure. Um... The, the idea behind this project actually came uh, in about May or June of 2021, right pretty much in the middle of COVID. Uh, I had read several articles from the United States Golf Association on uh, golf courses and their environmental sustainability, their, their, their need and, and want to to, to be good stewards of the properties that they administer. And it kind of sparked an interest in me uh, being an avid golfer that I am, but also working to restore habitat on private property across Northern Indiana. And uh, there's been quite a few different studies from many of our major land grant universities over the last 10 or 15 years, some more recent ones here, just in the last two or three years uh, trying to quantify the environmental uh, services that golf courses provide, you know, green space, habitat, water quality, uh, enjoyment of life, and so forth. And um, so that, that kind of has led me to, to something that I'm interested in pursuing. And uh, that's, that's how I kind of got involved with this project. Yeah, and I guess one question uh, to bring up is sort of uh, from like a very basic overview, um, what are some of those, uh, like even without biodiversity work being done, um, what are the, some of those benefits that, that golf courses offer as far as, you know, I, I think we hear a lot about like in particularly urban spaces and suburban spaces, um, issues with runoff and um, water retention, and obviously there's a lot of videos on the internet of wild turkeys on golf courses. Um, I suppose, yeah, like what are what are some of the things that um, that golf courses contribute, um, even without the the biodiversity work that's being explored? Well, most obviously. Um... You know, be, being uh, the United States Golf Association, being the, the 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 leading entity on golf in the United States, they they set the rules for play, for the environment, for stewardship of the properties that the golf courses are responsible for maintaining. You know, a lot of golf might, you know, might some people might think that there's a bad eye associated with golf courses with pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers, but a lot of people don't realize that there's some very talented people that are running these properties that have many, many multiple degrees, whether it be in turf science or, or even chemical engineering. Uh, the, their backgrounds lead them in the opportunity to, to steward the, the acres that they're in charge of. And that, that one article from uh, last, last summer uh, indicated that there's almost um, – what 14,600 golf courses in the United States that are responsible for over 2.3 million acres of, whether it be manicured turf or, or landscaping or woods or whatnot, there's, there's a big footprint on, on, on the planet from the golf course industry. Yeah, and that's a good, um, I guess, a good transition speaking of, of like turf grass science to um, Doug, can you talk a little bit about um, how you became involved in this and kind of Purdue's role um, in in the work being done um, in Indiana? Sure. Um, well, really, the impetus for me getting involved was Scott. You know, he actually came to me and with this idea of, you know, looking at 
establishment of these native areas on golf courses um, and mentioned that we might team up with the U.S. Golf Association and uh, work a project out to get us some of the key questions underlying uh, the establishment process, right? Uh, a lot of superintendents are are interested in this and a lot of have tried to do it, some with more success than others. Um, so we're sort of trying to get at this, this real simple, straightforward questions of, uh, you know, how does seating time and seating method affect establishment of those areas? The idea here is to give golf course superintendents a, uh, to help them set their expectations in a realistic way, right? You know, to help them understand the process that's involved and what they're going to end up with two, three, five, ten years down the road, perhaps. So that so that they, you know, they're realistic about the goals they're setting. And I think we had an opportunity here at Purdue. We have two NCAA championship golf courses that are uh, managed by some pretty talented people, Kyle Post being one of those people, um, Jim Scott, a prior superintendent, uh, also well-known in the golf industry. So we had the space, we had the impetus, we had the expertise, and so we thought, let's 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 give this a shot and and see what kind of good information we can provide. Yeah, um, I guess so. Pat and Ryan, um, how does the NWTF? How do we get involved in this? Um, what was sort of um, the genesis of that? Well, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same deal, Scott. Uh, had reached out to Ryan, and Ryan had, has an RFP process that we run all our projects through. So um, Scott had came to to Ryan and wanted to know if we might be interested in that because, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was involved. Pheasants Forever were trying to get involved, right? So um, they want to know if we'd be interested in funding some money to help purchase the seed and, you know, kind of went over it. So we took it as a Superfund chair. I took it to the state board. Uh, we voted on it, you know, that we thought it was a great idea. And what really um, opened our eyes to this project. What we really liked was the research. So once the research happens and, and it, we can have, and Doug's team can have some great data to take other places, you know, this isn't something that's just going to happen at Purdue is what we're hoping. We're hoping this is going to be a nationwide thing on golf courses, right? And if they can get the, which I know they will, they'll get the research done and all the data that that's needed. You know, that's what excited the state board more than anything is, you know, is we're just reaching beyond the borders of Indiana right? We're reaching borders everywhere. So that was, that was a really cool, cool thing that we really wanted to get involved in. But I think Ryan, he can probably get a little more in detail on, on how we got, you know, to this point, but. Yeah. I kick it over to you, Ryan. Yeah. I think Pat outlined it really well. Um, yeah, it was, it was Scott that had, had reached out to us initially and uh, yeah, chatting with him. We discussed the idea at first over the phone, terms of what what he had in mind and what what the potential for this partnership is and um you know as, as a golfer not a great one but um but nonetheless uh enjoy enjoy playing golf and have played in a lot of golf courses and as a wildlife biologist certainly um i was looking at this from a little bit you know different lens than maybe folks would suspect a biologist to look at it and more in alignment with what scott was envisioning in terms of We've got a really unique opportunity here to be able to partner uh, with university on research to hopefully extrapolate this across the country, but working specifically with Scott, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the, the local Pheasants Forever QF chapter, and, and really uh, be able to get in front of a newer demographic of people at golf courses to be able to showcase a lot of the work that we support across the landscape throughout much of the country, just a, a little bit smaller scale in some instances. Um, and so... I was, you know, looking at it in terms of that standpoint, that this this is a really unique partnership supporting ongoing research that hopefully could be carried over throughout the country. But it emphasizes that, you know, ourselves, Fish and Wildlife Service, all the partners are involved are are looking at this in terms of the importance of these these habitat types, these, the importance for pollinators, for what it means for water quality. Uh, certainly, from our perspective, the impacts for wild turkeys, knowing that, you know, we're thinking about this from from brood rearing habitat, right? These areas that have that that composition structure and diversity support 
generally high abundances of, of insects, which are important for nesting and brood rearing uh, wild turkeys. So uh, this is the type of habitat work that we would support and do support in other areas. And it's just cool to be able to partner on this and showcase it on, on golf courses. Yeah, um, I, I was wondering too, um, we, we sort of have briefly mentioned um, the, the research um, aspect of this. Um, so for people, I guess, who maybe didn't see the article that we put out on it, um, what are the what are the goals for the research? What are we trying to quantify? Um, kind of what's uh, the maybe get a little bit into the nitty gritty of of the the methods on, on that research and whatnot. Okay, so we have two main uh, sort of targets or goals. It was, it all stems from this idea of uh, when you plant and how you plant or establish these areas and what the outcomes are in terms of the vegetation and the insect community or the ecosystem services that are provided by those areas. So, you know, we used a couple different seeding types. We used sort of a broadcast seeding approach. You know, the preparation was, well, at least a year in prepping those sites before we ever thought about dropping seed in place. So lots of herbicide applications and mowing in preparation for it. We used this drop, the, uh, the broadcast seeding approach, compared it to a drill seeding approach, uh, either in the sort of late fall or spring. And then I have a graduate student, Ryan Beard, who is looking at the diversity of the plant communities over time. Um, and not just from a pure diversity standpoint, but you know, do what do we get in terms of uh, the seeds that we put in there, right? The desirable native plant species that we're looking for as compared to, you know, fighting weeds for the entire duration of the project, which is, you know, it's it's a it's a serious uh uphill battle in some cases. Um, so he's looking at quantifying the plant communities and the changes over time, rates of establishment of those native plants. And then on the other side, we're using pollinators, in particular bees, uh, as a measure of ecosystem services, right? We all have heard a lot about, you know, declines in pollinator populations. And bees, you know, they're about, uh, 2,400 species of bees that are native to North America, you know, so it's not just honeybees and the common species of bumblebees, but a lot of these native soil and crevice nesting bees or cavity nesting bees that that are showing up in these areas. And so he's, he's also monitoring those populations over time and comparing them to what happens in these areas that aren't renovated to these naturalized prairie sorts of areas. So we have, so we have some basis for comparing our progress on those two fronts. And um, I suppose what are, uh, like you mentioned that um, it can be a challenge keeping sort of non, non-desirable or maybe non-native species um, out of those areas. What are the like main competitors to um, the species that are being planted on those plots? Well, I can tell you what, what we're seeing is, uh, and, it's, and it was pre-existing vegetation, a, a smooth brome has been a major issue with for us, as well as Canada thistle. Um, so we're coming back in with some selective herbicides and mowing regimes that will help over the long-term decrease their, uh, their establishment and their su survival. But I, I'm gonna suggest that Scott's seen a lot more of this than I have, so he probably has some some other bigger picture sort of ideas of what kinds of challenges in terms of existing vegetation golf course superintendents might face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the Campin course at Purdue University, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but probably uh, let's see one, two, the three areas that that we planted are highly disturbed soil sites that were probably subsoil and borrow material that was somewhat randomly placed haphazardly in some instances 
And so the soil fertility is terrible and the weed seed bank is, has been prolific. And, and you know, this, despite the golf course superintendent being able to spray it, you know, in the fall of 21, throughout the entire growing season of 22, the fall of 22, the spring of 23, uh, there are areas where there are some problems and, and Doug mentioned it, uh, smooth brome and thistle. Uh, those are both, you know, pretty rhizomatous, deep root system. They tend to grow. You can kill it, top kill it. If you get a good kill, it might take it into the root system, but it brings back up the following year. So that's going to continue to be an issue, uh, not on the whole project, project, but definitely in certain areas where it, it definitely came on this year. But um, when I was there in what, late September, eh, mid-September of this year, and I was pretty confident and, and, and glad to see that uh, some of the species that have come up in year one, uh, butterfly weed, milkweed, uh, 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 some of the others that are a little, I mean, like, I'm, there's probably some sky blue aster and New England blue aster that's actually come up in year one that's there this fall. Um, the seed mix that we put down was a very diverse, uh, it was about 35 species in total, uh, five or six native grasses, all of your traditional big blue, little blue, uh, Indian grass. So you had prairie drop seed, June grass, uh, but the Forbes component was about as rich as any seed mix I've planted probably in the last 10 or 15 years. So probably over 28, 29 species that once established, there will be something in bloom from basically late April to October. The, mm -hmm. the whole entire pollinator season, there will be multiple species in bloom throughout the entire season. And so I guess, um, I, I know you had mentioned, Doug, about kind of managing expectations. Is that part of what you meant, like, as far as the amount of, like, prep work um, for a site? Because I think that maybe, like, the, like, seed banks, that's not something maybe people think about when they try to, you know, maybe they have a property, they want to plant pollinator habitat. They don't think about the fact that there's all of this, you know, all of these seeds that are in the ground that are waiting to pop up things they don't want to see. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, it's, it would be great if, if we could go out and establish these areas quickly, right? And they turn into these really nice, aesthetically appealing and uh, ecologically uh, sound communities, you know, stable, functional communities. But it's, you know, look, most of these areas, like Scott mentioned, have been desert, dis, uh, highly disturbed in the past. They may or may not be sort of the native topsoil. They may have been pushed up to help form, you know, the contours of the golf course. And in those seed banks, you know, we have a lot of weed seeds that have accumulated over potentially decades, right, uh, from these these plants that are now naturalized but are not native and in many cases quite aggressive and invasive. So I think in terms of setting golf course superintendents expectations, that's a key part of it, right? Understanding that it's not just plant and you're done, that there's going to be a lot of prep work on the front side and then there's going to be a lot of maintenance following for the next, well, several to many years to get that area, give that area a stand, a chance to establish back to the native plant community. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands 
that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. And once those, like once you've kind of established an area like that, um, does it tend to be fairly resilient um, or does it do uh, those other species successfully like kind of recolonize those areas or is that something the research trying to determine or? I, I think that's part of the answer. The question will answer, but I, I, I would defer to Scott on this. I, I definitely feel that, you know, once as best as preparation can be completed, you know, before it's planted, that, that's probably the most important part. The entire project is getting the site ready to go. Um, as far as setting expectations, I can't thank the, the university and Kyle, the superintendent. Uh, I mean, they, they've been great to work with. Uh, I, I think he knows that it's it, it's not like tr planting your traditional bent grass fairway. You got X amount of pounds per acre, you put it down, you water it, you fertilize it, you mow it. Prairie doesn't work that way. I mean, there's there's there are seeds, there are species in the seed mix that might lie dormant in the seed bed for two, three, four years before they ever find the right conditions to germinate. Um, it, it's, it's as much an art as it is a science and working with, whether it be a golf course or a private landowner, whom I normally would be working with the, the, the most important thing is to stress, you know, site preparation, some mowing maintenance for the first couple, two or three years, then we'll step back and take a look and see where we're at and, and. Uh, an old, a professor of mine once told me with prairie restorations, there's three adages. The first year it sleeps, the second year it creeps, and the third year it leaps. So mm -hmm. by the end of three growing seasons, I'll expect to see some major strides being taken and this thing starting to take a foothold and, and, and we can start to, to appreciate the benefits of, of all their efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, Brian, I was wondering if you could um, touch on just kind of the benefit of this kind of work to obviously wild turkeys and maybe wildlife more generally as well. Yeah, yeah, I can touch on that. Certainly, um, you know, re restoring native prairies and, and um, you know, areas that are comprised of native warm season grasses um, and a diversity of wildflowers, um, you know, your non-grass, non non-woody non species, uh, we're talking about forbs, are, it's important for a wide array of, of wildlife species. From, from our standpoint, we're thinking about it, like I said, specifically from, uh, you know, breeding season habitat, providing a food source is critical for wild turkeys when, you know, hens about ready to prepare for, for nesting season, about 90% of her diet can be comprised of insects. So that's, that's important for egg development. And then those first couple of weeks, um, if she rears a successful, you know, clutch, she's got a brood, um, 
you know, that feather development is critical for those young bolts to reach the stage where they can, they can fledge and then their survivability goes up significantly from there. But, you know, they, the effects, the importance of, of restoring native prairie, especially on the edge through parts of the, the Midwest that were historically tall grass prairie. And then that as the moisture gradient shifts to the different parts of the states in the Midwest, you see, you know, increase in the amount of forest cover types, but transitional habitats like oak savannas and woodlands but you know we've we've largely lost a lot of our, our native prairies and, and oak savanna ecosystems which are comprised of a lot of these native grasses and prairie types here in the midwest which um you know support a number of uh you know rare and threatened um and and species of great conservation need uh, in these regions so certainly important for uh, a variety of species from you know reptiles amphibians um Lepidopterans, your butterfly species, and uh, and then all of your 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 primary you know game species, your popular game species rely on on these these sites as well. So, and um, I guess a follow up question to that would be, uh, what is it about um, like why why do you see more? And I, I don't know if this is a a stupid question, but um, you know why do you see a significant um, increase in like insect density in those like native uh like prairie areas versus like a fescue field like why is there that sort of difference if there is a difference um between those those types of habitat Oh, absolutely, um, and and especially where you see higher higher levels of diversity of, of native dwarf species, you're going to have a, um, a greater diversity of insects that respond to that. So, like Scott was mentioning, it's a, an extremely diverse seed mix that uh, was selected and being planted. So it's it's providing a nectar source for those insects early, midway through, and later um, in throughout the growing season. So you're going to see a greater response there as opposed to a monotypical stand, which is just all comprised of fescue. It offers uh, far, far fewer values from a wildlife standpoint. So the, the emphasis on creating that diversity supports uh, attracting a, a diverse uh, array of, of wildlife species and insects. Okay. Yeah. I guess I didn't necessarily think about having those, like having the diversity of species and then, then, kind of, I guess, a, a rolling harvest, if you will, if you're an insect of, of food sources, uh, that's probably not a very accurate way of describing it. But um, Pat, I wanted to to kind of touch on a little bit more about um, kind of the, the role of the Indiana State uh, chapter in this, because um, like you was mentioned, you know, this was, um, part of the Superfund process. And I guess maybe for people who are in a local chapter, who don't know what the Superfund is, don't know how um, state projects get adopted. Um, and, you know, maybe they have like a, a an idea for, you know, a project or, or want to, to look into how conservation work gets done on the state level. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and and what sort of resources are available um, to state chapters? Sure, absolutely. So how it all how it all kind of works in a nutshell. So we have um, each spring, each fall, summer, we have uh, heritage fundraising banquets, right? So what it is, you go to a local banquet. Most everybody just calls them the local banquet. The NWTF puts this on with the local chapter. The local chapter raises money. We you know, we have all kinds of raffles and games and have a meal and it's a it's a good night of fellowship. And um, most of the time, our regional director, which is uh, Grant Schimmel, he gets up and he will talk about the projects going across the state. We we have accomplishments reports that we put on the put on the tables next for, you know, on the placemats, basically. So you can we kind of roll it all in how many acres conserved, how many acres that we've acquired throughout the year, things of that nature. And then, so that money that's raised from either uh, you know a fundraising event, it can be a it can be a banquet, it could be a, a a gun bash, it could be a golf outing, right? It can be it, it can be bingo night, it can be anything that a local chapter wants to put on. That money goes into what is called the super fund, and that super fund is managed through national. We get a percentage of that um, super fund money. It's it's it, it's called twenty two and a half percent. Get twenty percent, two percent, and a half a percent that goes different places, and then and the remaining of that goes to help with administrative fees, so on and so forth. So the money that comes back to the state, and we have a pretty 
uh, a pretty good budget in our state. Um, the thing about Indiana is, is we have a lot less um, public ground and a lot more private ground, right? And some states have a lot of public ground that they can do a lot of projects on. So Indiana's, you know, we're down to six, 7% of public ground in the state, which isn't very much. So the, the projects that we get to do sometimes, you know, we have a, a large variety of different projects we can do. So if a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Area or the DNR or even a local chapter wants to do something, we have what was called an RFP process. That's mainly for the DNRs and, and the um, state agencies and national uh, agencies, fish and wildlife areas. So they Ryan sends out the RFP process and, and they have to fill out a form. And then those forms come back after they're completed to Ryan and Ryan scores those. We have a scoring uh, process that we go through <clears throat> and the projects, of course, that score high for our mission. Um, that's what we will try to fund those projects the best that we can. And also um, if a local chapter has a has a habitat project that they want to do or if they want to put on an outreach event to raise more money so on and so forth those are also uh, funded through the superfund they can they put in for those requests and then um that i'm the chairman of the superfund committee we have a uh, the superfund committee actually votes on it before we take it to the state board so whether it's a pass or a fail on those on those local and even the um the ones that Ryan's bring forth to us, we still bring those all forward to the to the state board and let them know why this one didn't make the cut and why we're funding these. So then the state board votes on that, and then we, that's how we end up funding the projects. And then Ryan, you know, we disperse the money through national to these projects. Um, in Indiana, we're really it's we're kind of special too, as we have a license plate um, in Indiana NWTF license plate, and so. Uh, the it's a vanity plate of course it's got a really cool picture of some deer and turkey and ducks flying and it says nwtf on the plate and 25 dollars of that stays to the indiana state chapter so it costs you 40 dollars extra for your license plate the indiana state um chapter gets 25 dollars of those funds and all of those funds have to be spent in the boundaries of indiana so we can't spend it on any place else on any other uh, projects outside of the boundaries of Indiana. So we can use that money for acquisition or we can use that money for uh, conservation. So, you know, there's been a couple really nice projects that we've we've helped purchase some land here lately. You know, we've put $50,000 in a couple different projects, you know, to, to help purchase some land for more public access through the license plate. Um, so it, it's, that's really helped us. So we try to push that you know, on any member, anybody that wants to play. It's a good looking plate if you're an outdoorsman and, and that money stays right here. Indiana, you know, we have some some other vanity plates that, that that money doesn't stay right within our state. So it's really good to have that. So that's kind of how the process works and, and how we make sure we have enough funds to, to fund that. So we run average on a our super fund budget is, is right around 120, 30,000. And in, in our license plate, you know, we have we, we gain about one hundred ten thousand dollars a year on our license plate fund that comes in. It's just a revolving door that we try to that we try to keep that money you know, going back out. So it's really important that, you know, and Ryan does an excellent job of finding projects for us. You know, he's he's always beating the bush and he's always coming up with great ideas and, um, you know, people coming to him and, and he's really good about vetting those projects before they ever get to us too. And if the individual hasn't filled the form out right, you know, he'll help them through that form and say, hey, you know, can we do this instead of that? You know, and they're like, oh, absolutely. Well, if we can do it this way, then we can, you know, we can maybe help fund that a lot mm. better, so. Okay. Um, what, I guess if you are, um, you know, speaking of private lands, private lands conservation, um, and for someone who, who's listening to this podcast and, um, you know, maybe they play golf, maybe they don't play golf, um, uh, but they've got, you know, maybe they have 50 acres or a hundred acres and they're like, Hey, you know, I want to do some, some work, you know, planting pollinator habitat or, you know, something, along those lines of, of increasing the biodiversity on their, their property, what, um, what resources are available to them uh, in Indiana? Like where should they kind of start that search? So that, they're, they're, that's a very good question. So that, that comes right back to me actually, because I'm the habitat coordinator for the state. So they can reach out to their regional director and then um, grant he can he can put them in touch with me or my my information's out there on the on the web that they can they can get a hold of me so as a habitat coordinator uh, we actually do a private lands um, consulting it's free to any nwtf member in the state um, i also run a a habitat seed program uh, for this state we have spring and fall sales every year 
um, and we we have um, actually have uh, seed mixes that are that are approved by the by the NRCS in the state that we can sell if they want to and and you know any kind of equip program or any kind of uh, set aside you know what we want to call set aside programs and if they don't want to get into one of those programs we can do specific mixes for individuals um, that's what I did on my farm I have a farm I have 75 acres that we that's just total uh, habitat land that, that we do and it, it had some tillable ground on it and then we use some of that for some year-round food plots and we also turned a lot of that into to habitat uh, pollinators um, you know some some of that kind of stuff some bedding ground and, and just kind of basically what we're doing here on the golf course because that had been some of that ground that we put that in had been fallow for a long time and a lot of grass and a lot of there was a lot of thistles and so I, I know what the golf course is fighting I did the same thing and you know, it's kind of like Scott said, you know, sleeps, creeps and leaps. I was always told that you want you you have to want it, then you have to wait on it and then you get to watch it, you know, and then everybody's instant gratification and, you know, kind of in that state of mind that everybody's in now. That's a really hard thing to watch native native plants and grasses and forbs grow because it's such a slow process, you know, and it's just something that you have to you have to really that I try to tell everybody when I go do a private lands consulting, I said, Hey, we can't plant this. There's going to be some black eyed Susans come up and some of that stuff. It's going to look, you know, some goldenrod and some things right off to get milkweed. But some of those other things just aren't going to, they're going to come in year two and three. And, and some of it probably won't come until maybe we have to, 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 you know, do a burn or we have to get, have to mow it, you know, things of that nature. So some of the, some of the work that has to be done in order to make it work, you know, like we've been talking, it's, it's not just a one and done kind of thing. It's one of those things that we that we we tell people. Now you can you can plant it and walk away from it, but you're not going to have the diversity of the plants and things that you would probably want. You know, so it's it's something that it needs to be maintenance. But once you get it down to that year three, four, five, mainly probably year five, then it just be kind of kind of takes care of itself. You know, in a way, if you just kind of watch it. And uh, so that's that's the main thing that I try to tell private people is you know we can do anything that you want to do. We help them through programs if they want to do, you know, sign up for government programs. And then there's, of course, there's mid, mid-season or mid-contract uh, maintenance that you have to do on some of that stuff and here on and so forth. But, yeah, we, we walk everybody through that. And, and I, I bounce everything off of Ryan. I, I want the expert to, to come in there. I'm by no means any expert. I'm just an old farm boy, you know, that, that really loves um, habitat work. So, um but yeah, that's that's kind of we kind of do it, you know. And then Ryan, I'll send maps to Ryan, and Ryan will send me back, you know, hey, we probably ought to do this, or these are the mixes that would probably work better in that soil type, and so on and so forth. So it's it's just a collaborative role between uh, a national and Indiana and and local people, you know. It's a lot of fun to be part of that. Yeah. Um, before we go, I, I I wanted to touch too on the um, kind of the. Well, actually, two things. So, um, Doug or Scott, feel free um, to jump in on this. Um, kind of a similar question. You know, if somebody is a land manager um, for a golf course who, you know, maybe they're hearing this from, you know, California, wherever, um, and they are interested in, in the work that's that you guys are doing and want to start looking at um increasing biodiversity native plants on the land that they're managing um what what resources should they start with where where should they begin well um you know the u.s fish and wildlife service obviously has got offices in all 50 states the partners for fish and wildlife program provides cost federal tax payer cost share dollars to restore habitat whether it be prairie or wetlands, reforestation projects. I'm just kind of speaking on some of the projects that I've worked on in the past, low head dam removals in Northern Indiana. Uh, we don't have a pr program per se for golf courses, but I think a lot of my counterparts, if we had a project that was a viable enough project with a what the golf course or the owner that that has the intention of carrying through with with a project of that nature you know if if we can use it as an opportunity to link maybe adjacent habitats to build upon something they already have and, and maybe improve or, or or enhance it 
that's something that 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 they could do. They could they could contact the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services partners for fish and wildlife biologists. Um, a, a private landowner, you know, kind of where where we are here today. Our program is designed to provide that type of cost here to private landowners. Uh, it could be a private individual, a corporation, a farm, a uh, county park, a municipality. Uh, the only thing we're not allowed to do is provide money to a state facility. Well, that's what brought me to the National Wild Turkey Federation and Pheasants Forever to help me out because after we got well into this idea, we found out that we couldn't give cost share money to uh, to the to Purdue University, which is a state-owned university. Mm. Um, of course, the name of our program is called Partners for Fish and Wildlife. It's because we never usually have enough budget to do the whole project, but we can find all the partners to pull it all together. And, and that's what I had to, I kind of had to go backwards a little bit and figure out where to come up with the money for the seed for the Purdue Golf Course Project. So where there's a will, there's a way. All right. Did you want to jump in on that at all, Doug? Yeah, just briefly. I mean, you know, part of the, the joy I'm getting out of this project right now is not just the science part, but, you know, just seeing how these relationships are built, all of the interesting and knowledgeable partners that are that are really necessary to make something like this click. And, uh, you know, National Wild Turkey Federation, you know, all of the expertise that, that they can bring to bear on this kind of thing. Um, and uh, of course, the Fish and Wildlife Service and all of their experience as well. So, I'm having a great time just learning a lot from these folks, you know. And the and, and in the process, being able to do what hopefully turns out to be some uh, useful science. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we we close it out, um, Ryan, Pat, is there anything else that you feel like we we didn't cover that we needed to cover, um, or any sort of like closing? things you'd like to say? I think I'd, I'd just jump in and, and sort of um, circle back on some of the previous comments made. I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Doug was saying. I think I get enjoyment out of the power of partnerships and seeing how uh, each individual organization and entity is, is investing in a project like this to reach a common goal, but it impacts each of our respective goals differently. It's, it's one of the really cool things about this project and the unique things about it. And I think, you know, uh, Scott is uh, very modest and undersells his, his role in terms of his abilities of being able to bring partners together and secure funding to make projects work and provide cost share for work on private lands. And, um, you know, so it, this really all came together thanks to, you know, Scott and the support from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And, um, you know, it's allowed Pat and I to, to get engaged. And when Pat and I first spoke about it. You know, we were, we were really excited about not only the potential of the research, like Pat had mentioned, but you know what this could mean in terms of getting this information out and sharing it in front of folks that maybe aren't aware of all of the organizations and why we may be invested in projects like this. And um, and and lastly, like Pat was saying, you know, we um, ninety six percent of Indiana is is privately owned. So um, and you know, you go east of the Mississippi in terms of our conservation program delivery, it's it's critically important that we consider um, supporting conservation program delivery on private lands if we really wanna move the needle uh, for, for wild turkey populations. And so we do that most effectively um, by, by relying really heavily on our partnerships like the US Fish and Wildlife Service Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, um, some of our cooperative um, positions that we have. We have two of which are in Indiana for, uh, for foresters in Southern Indiana, but uh, um, you know, collectively working with uh, our federal agency partners, our state agencies, to help deliver on some of those things really, really helps us. So that's where Pat and I can kind of be a conduit there. We can we can reach out or landowners or members reach out to us. Um, you know, Pat and I had developed a, a technical assistance landowner guide. So we can really um, preliminarily assess what a landowner may be interested in, and then we can get them in contact with with Scott or one of his counterparts, or uh, maybe a local uh, soil and water conservation district staff for doing work on on private lands. So uh, this this project was unique and uh, was one that I think that um, all of us were really excited about the opportunity to help support. 
Was there anything you wanted to add before we before we go, Pat? No, not really. I just want to thank everybody for um, giving us the opportunity to do this project, right? I think it's a really unique project. I, I really do. I think, you know, Doug and I saw Doug over there at the course the other day. I, I actually, um, I work here at Purdue University, so I have an opportunity to run over there and kind of see what's going on. And, and I had an opportunity to talk with Doug and just to see the excitement, and you know, in his eyes and, and talking to him about how this project's coming along. And you know, it's just it's just fun to be part of, and I really appreciate everybody, Scott and Doug and Purdue and WTF for for you know letting us be part of this project and the state board for making the good decisions to spend good money in good places. You know, I think it's it's really it's really good. It's a good fit. All right. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to to talk with us about the project. Um, for those of you who are listening, who maybe had not heard of it before, we'll include the, um, the article that was written about it in the show notes. Um, and, you know, if you live in Indiana, uh, there's some exciting conservation work happening. So um, thank you all, and we'll uh, catch up with you later. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Bass Pro Shops and the National Wild Turkey Federation stand together to help make a difference for the wildlife and scenic lands that enrich our hunting lifestyle. Since 1973, we have positively impacted more than 22 million acres and invested more than $9 million into wild turkey research, an effort supported by Bass Pro Shops. The restoration of the wild turkey is one of America's greatest conservation success stories, but the work is far from over. Through the continued contributions of partners like Johnny Morris and Bass Pro Shops, the NWTF mission is a movement that is delivering the right conservation work at the right place and at the right scale. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com.